Torture. What explains it? Why are interrogators and their superiors ever drawn to it? And why do they think they can get away with it? Those are the questions driving my new book, American Torture from the Philippines to Iraq, A Recurring Nightmare. Thanks very much to Conversation 6 for letting me share a bit about the book. I hope this inspires you to ask your favorite library to purchase it. The idea for the book came in graduate school while reading a massive tome that was only a little smaller than the ones I used to sit on when I was little so my mom could cut my hair. This volume cataloged all the ways in which democracies have used torture. And after several hundred pages, the author asks, so does torture work as an interrogation method? His answer is, no, not very well. It's not that it's never worked, but it can cause people to make things up just to end the abuse. It can destroy the interrogator as well as the victim. It can mess up other parts of the investigation, etc., etc. So it has all these problems, which made me ask, well, what's going on here? Torture is already ethically problematic, and now it's also ineffective? Then why does it recur? And I wasn't fully satisfied with the quickest answers I could find. For instance, it's true that torturers are often desperate for intelligence, but that doesn't tell us why people think torture is a good response to a feeling of desperation. So what's the intuition here? And why are norms and laws prohibiting torture often unable to stop it, even when torturers think there's a strong chance that they'll be caught? A little story gets at my answer to these questions. During the uh, War on Terror, part of the CIA in enhanced interrogation program was to put detainees in black sites, these interrogation centers in undisclosed locations with no contact to the outside world. One of the more notorious sites was named Cobalt. Cobalt was dark, cold, and brutal. One CIA officer quipped that Cobalt was itself an enhanced interrogation technique. There, and there was plenty of coercion happening within as well. Forced diaper wearing, blaring music, rough takedowns, and so forth. A contractor for the CIA, Bruce Jessen, one of the architects of the interrogation program, co called Cobalt excellent. Now, what did he mean by this? Jessen thought it was, as he put it, nasty but safe. So let's unpack nasty but safe, because I think it gets at the heart of the book's argument. On the one hand, I argue that there's this persistent assumption that in the rough and tumble world of international politics and war, you have to play hardball. You can't just follow the rules. You have to be willing to bend or break them. It's this belief that cheaters win. This isn't a crazy assumption, even if it isn't always true. If you have to play by the rules and others can do whatever they want, won't they have an advantage? So on the other hand, torturers often think they can justify their deeds if they're caught. Because severity is on a sliding scale, torturers anticipate that they'll be able to play down their methods as something milder than torture, or compare them favorably with what the other side is doing, or reimagine the definition of torture to try and exonerate themselves. That's the second half of the nasty but safe line. President George W. Bush echoed the sentiment in his first big speech on the interrogation program in 2006. He said that the procedures were safe and lawful, but in the same breath, he also called them tough and necessary. This nasty but safe pattern of justification I find repeats itself. And it's why about 120 years ago, 
one U.S. soldier from the Philippine-American War testified that he chose to strike prisoners repeatedly with an open hand rather than a closed fist during an interrogation session because he believed it would be, quote, the least brutal and painful method which would be efficacious. It's also why, decades later, in 1968, the Washington Post reported U.S. soldiers in Vietnam choosing an interrogation method similar to waterboarding because, quote, those who practice it say it combines the advantage of being unpleasant enough to make people talk while still not causing permanent injury. So here's one way to pick up what I've put down and run with it. I think it's possible to extend my argument to separate but related issues. For instance, I think that the pervasive belief that autocrats have an edge versus rules-bound democracies has tempted certain elected officials to chip away at their own liberal democratic institutions. And it's a trend that those of us who want democracy to survive and even thrive should resist. So this is Will D'Ambroso, postdoctoral fellow with the International Security Program and the Project on Managing the Atom at Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, saying thank you very much for listening. Be well, and I'll see you in the library.